the psalmist declared for us indeed in the 103rd Psalm, verse 11, the fact that God's mercy is as great as in fact the heavens are higher than the earth. We can gather tonight under the great blessing of God's mercy that he's extended to each and every one of us. What a glorious day we've enjoyed. And as we look forward to the growing season and the summertime that's ahead of us, with the blessing of God, we shall enjoy even more of his handiwork and the greatness to be seen therein. Earlier today, we, of course, enjoyed a worship service here this morning and afterward, period of fellowship, if you will, as the young and also those young at heart proceeded to hunt eggs and other things like that. We hope it's a time to encourage one another to testify to the enjoyment that is in Christianity. And speaking of that, what about friendship, which is, in fact, a portion of our subject for tonight? As you noticed in the reading a moment ago, taken from the last three verses of the opening chapter of Paul's book, 2 Timothy, as we look at those verses, we shall learn tonight a valiant lesson about friendship itself. But what's more, might I submit to you that the very gentleman who was Paul's good friend, at least mentioned there, the one whose name was Onesiphorus, we shall in fact study a bit tonight about the linkage of that friendship what some of the factors were involved in it, and also how that might help you and me to be better friends as you and I play that role today. Might I submit to you as we begin, though, friendship is a tremendously great blessing, isn't it? As we sojourn through this life, understanding, in fact, that it is but brief, we are nonetheless pleased to observe that on the stage of life, in the very association to you and me are those whom we are privileged to call friends. And furthermore, those who are also privileged to call you and me his or her friend. The idea of friendship is one that is appreciated from an early age, isn't it? When that young kindergartner or perhaps first grader comes home and so excitedly shares with dad and mom about a new friend with whom he, he or her has become associated, it's such an exciting time. It's such an interesting thing to see that social friendship begin and the capability of appreciation one, of, one, of one another. According to Webster's Dictionary, here is a definition that's used there for what a friend is. I've listed it there for your consideration. It is, in fact, a person whom one knows well and is proud of. Another definition in that same dictionary is a supporter or an ally. You gain the feeling that a friend is one who knows you and whom you know. And not only that, but that depth of appreciation goes much further than mere acquaintanceship. It goes much deeper than just mere knowing another's name. We each appreciate that, but as we think of and study it, might we also note that the Bible testifies considerably of friendship. It speaks of it in a general way, and we will study many passages this afternoon that touch that subject, but it also gives us a host of explicit examples of friends, and we can learn how they interacted with one another. We can appreciate what they did for one another and the benefit they, that they each gained from that beautiful friendship. Might I submit to you that for that latter part, we will focus primarily upon Onesiphorus and Paul. But for the general teaching, let's set the stage for where we shall begin with Paul and Onesiphorus by turning back to the Old Testament and noting that there are various kinds of friends. This, too, is something that we often learn, albeit sometimes painfully. 
we understand that not all friends are equal, if you will, y'all. And let me mention what I mean by that opening statement. You see, it's true that there are some who are friends so long as there's something that they can benefit from what you have to offer. That is to say, there are, they are a friend so long as you have something to give. When you cease to have anything to give, they cease to be friends. When you no longer have anything by which they can be benefited, be it money, prestige, power, or position, then suddenly their friendship's hard to find. Their friendship is hard to detect. It's hard to, in fact, appreciate. And that's exactly what the wise man Solomon said long ago. In Proverbs 19, verses 4 and 6, notice there what the inspired writer note noted. He said, wealth maketh many friends. <laughs> Isn't it true that quite often when there's money to be had, friends are plentiful? It seems many want a piece of the pie. Notice two verses later, that to those who have gifts to distribute, there are many friends willing to take them. That's to say, then, that we appreciate that there are many fair-weather friends, those who are more than willing to be friendly so long as they can be benefited. They can be advantaged or gained or in some way pushed forward by what the friendship has to offer. To say all that is to say that perhaps the Bible presents a number of things about that kind of friendship. First of all, in Proverbs 14, verse 20, we each realize how a friendship like that will end. For when there is no longer that which is to be shared, that friendship is gone. No wonder it is said there in Proverbs 14, 20 that the poor has friends hard to find. What was it that occurred to that prodigal son in Luke 15? When he left with his share of the inheritance, it would appear that friends were abundant, wasn't it? When he was in that far country, you see, and he had wealth aplenty and able to share it in abundance, there were many willing to testify and take advantage. But isn't it interesting that when the money was gone, when his share of the inheritance was depleted, he found himself feeding the hogs. There was no friend ready to come to his aid. Those same friends who had been by his side not many days prior were suddenly nowhere to be found. Isn't it amazing that there are friends like that? They really like to take advantage. That's sad. It's tragic. But the Bible testifies that that's the way it is for some. In Judges 16, we notice a lady named Delilah and a man named Samson. It would seem that that kind of relationship was another good example. She desired so much because of that which the Philistines had offered her to learn what it was that was Samson's source of strength. She would not be satisfied until she had found out. But we well remember that when she did find out, she turned traitor to him. She was no friend. In fact, she led to the very capture of him, and what's more, they gouged out his eyes and ultimately led to his ruin. What a friend that was. You and I can easily appreciate that with friends like that, one would need no enemies. Isn't it amazing to appreciate that the friends then come in varying degrees and types? But let us hasten to that kind of friend we do so grandly love to appreciate. I've listed this as the second consideration. There are those who are friends who are truly genuine. Those who are caring and are concerned and are not hypocritical. They are not in the friend business just to be advantaged. 
Those, of course, are those friends whom we cherish so deeply. Their friendship is not merely on the surface. It's not merely a fair, sunny weather kind of friendship. It goes much deeper than that. The Bible also speaks often of these. I would invite you to read some passages with me again from Proverbs. Notice chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loveth at all times. Notice he didn't say that only when times are good or only when times are advantaged, a friend loveth at all times. The next chapter, Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man that would have many friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Fascinating indeed, isn't it? That we appreciate the reality that those that would be friendly must, of course, show themselves friendly. And we already have the interesting note, and one to which we shall return later, that there is indeed a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In Proverbs 27, verses 6 and 17, we learn an additional fact about the trustworthiness that's involved in a genuine friendship. How that a friend can even correct a friend, but do so not out of a disposition of condescending character, not out of a position of, well, I'm better than you, but out of a genuine feeling of desire to improve that person or to help them out of a difficult spot, to help them understand a truth that maybe they'd never understood before. To say all of that testifies to us that indeed, perhaps in life, those kinds of friends are few and far between. Those kinds of friends who genuinely are selfless, they aren't in it for themselves. They simply enjoy one's company, one's friendship, one's association, and that kind of friend is a treasure indeed. I've listed some other passages for your consideration. It may be that your mind has already considered these as well. What about that joyous friendship that was struck between Ruth and Naomi? As the book of Ruth opens, we understand that the family of Elimelech came upon hard times. Insomuch that as they had moved to the land of Moab, there her two boys found Moabite women and they married them. We understand that Ruth was the wife of one of her sons. However, those boys died. At that point, we recall that Naomi insisted that those two, Ruth being one, return to Moab and there to do that which they could do and to live their life in a joyous and hopeful, hopeful fashion. She, however, was intended to go back into Jerusalem, to the city around in the area of Bethlehem. However, in those parting words, we find such famous devotion, such famous dedication. For even after Naomi insisted that Ruth tarry behind, Ruth spoke up and said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried, and may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Can you see the tears beginning to flow from Naomi's eyes as she heard Ruth make a statement of such selfless devotion? She was willing to leave behind her kinsfolk, her people, her land, and her family, and travel with this Naomi, a person whom she'd come to love and cherish, and that she did. What about Jonathan and David? Later in the Old Testament chronology, we well remember that David, 
also was one who, of course, was not in the kingly line. Saul was the current king. He was the first king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And he had a son named Jonathan. It was well to be expected that the next king would be Jonathan. He was Saul's son. However, God had a different idea in mind. After Saul's great sin, recorded in chapters 13 and 15 of 1 Samuel, God expressly told him, I've taken the kingdom from you and given it to one better than you. Saul didn't like to appreciate, didn't fully understand that it would seem at that point. He had in mind the fact his son Jonathan would be the next king. But as one chapter after another rolls by, we see a strong friendship struck between Jonathan and David. So much so that even though Jonathan may have desired the kingship and thought it belonged to him, he willfully and selflessly sacrificed it for the betterment of David. Time and again, Jonathan was there to encourage, to comfort. After all, it was Jonathan's own father, Saul, that tried to kill David on two occasions. And yet, Jonathan was there to offer some kind words of support. When Jonathan was offering that support, David was on the run. But Jonathan found him. He encouraged him. He, in fact, ultimately was part of what would bring David back to the empire and to the kingdom. What a genuine friend it was. And interestingly, how did David react when he learned of Jonathan's death? Some of the most famous words in all the Old Testament. In fact, the very last set of words in both 1 Samuel 31 and also in 2 Samuel chapter 1 where in fact David lamented the death of Jonathan. That lamentation was so great. He appreciated the love and friendship of Jonathan. Having said all of that, might we observe the carefulness with which we should appreciate friendship? We understand the Bible warns us to choose our friends rather carefully. For after all, in 1 Corinthians 15, again, those famous words, and many a parent has shared them with his or her son or daughter. For after all, they are as true today as they ever were. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You see, one has to be careful. The one whom one chooses to hang around with or to spend lots of time with. For whatever good qualities they may have will, of course, be an improvement and an encouragement to you. But whatever bad traits and evil dispositions and poor qualities they have, those two in time almost naturally will become a part of you. That's a dire warning, isn't it? And no wonder thus Paul said, be not deceived. It's so easy for you and me to think that we are strong enough to ward off any potential catastrophes or wicked difficulties that may occur from friendship. That we will encourage the other, not the other, discourage us. My friend, we must be ever careful. It could well be explained in this fashion. Imagine that you as the person are in a position, but the friend is the one who is the wicked or the one not quite as wholesome and spiritual. Imagine that you are, in fact, standing on a table, being higher in a spiritual plane, the other person standing on the floor. Which is easier, for that person to pull you off the table or for you to pull that person up onto the table? The answer is easy enough seen, isn't it? It's far easier for that person to pull you off the table and thus to bring your disposition of spirituality lower than it is for you to pull that person up on the table. 
It's not to say it can't be done, but the tendency and the likelihood is far more in favor of the one than it is the other, isn't it? And hence, to choose friends must be done very cautiously and very carefully indeed. Isn't it interesting that a friend can offer so many things? We noted a moment ago about that genuine friend. I've listed some passages for your consideration, such as Proverbs 27, 9, where the kind, encouraging words that a friend may offer may be that very throughway in which that person or you would miss catastrophe or disaster, where you would not be found in trouble. Not only that, later in that same chapter, we also see that iron sharpeneth iron. And how wonderful it is to consider the trustworthy counsel and advice of a true friend. As a good friend, have you ever had to go to a person who is your friend and to share with them news or information that might not be so awfully positive and good? Maybe you came to learn something about them that was not wholesome, but you as a friend went to them in all honesty and directness and pointed out to them that error or that fault or that mistake. If they were a true friend, they received that with, thank with thankfulness. They appreciated the fact you were concerned enough about them to bring that to their attention. That kind of friendship is a special one, isn't it? As we consider various examples in the Bible of that, one that we can certainly consider is the one involving Paul and Onesiphorus. As we are shortly to turn to that and focus some attention on it, might I ask you to notice that when a good friend is to be found, that person is not to be forsaken. I've listed a text for you to consider, and I'd ask that you read it with me. Proverbs 27, verse number 10. Thine own friend and thy father's friend forsake not. When you and I then do that which is just to a friendship, we don't just leave a friend hanging. We don't ignore. We don't forsake. We appreciate the genuine character of that friendship and approach it in a fashion that's worthy of the friendship. So much so that that's what ultimately builds a strong foundation of trust between the two, isn't it? And that strong foundation is one that we've seen in a few examples already tonight. Naomi and Ruth, Jonathan and David, and also shortly... Paul and Onesiphorus. In fact, Paul knew about friends that were wholesome, trustworthy, good and kind. He also knew about those that were not so described. I'd ask that you start with me reading in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 1. The reading of a bit earlier tonight began in verse 16, but I purposefully desired us to hold off on verse 15 until now. This knowest thou that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. You see, Paul had many acquaintances, and some who no doubt at one time had been rather important friends, and yet here he spoke that all those in Asia, like this Phygelus and Hermogenes, they've deserted me. They've turned aside from me. They no longer experience the bond of friendship with me. We maybe each have known what it's like for a friend to turn traitor on us and no longer be that kind and true friend that we once enjoyed. It's so sad, it hurts. Perhaps for weeks on end, it's hard to get over that. Paul here noted, though, that it had happened to him too. But might I ask you to note in the very next breath, 
without skipping a beat. He makes note of a genuine, true friend, one of whom he was so proud, one of whom he treasured that friendship so much. Please read with me again in the very next verse, verse 16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord granted to him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus thou knowest very well. Oh, the words that Paul thought, the feelings that he shared concerning this man named Onesiphorus. Let's discuss then for the remainder of our time tonight the friendship that Paul enjoyed with Onesiphorus. A little background would be of aid to us as we come to the text that we just read. This great apostle Paul, this marvelous soldier of the cross, was soon to lay his old armor down and pass from this life into his great reward beyond. As he did that, the very last letter that he ever wrote was the book of 2 Timothy. His young protege, his young son in the faith, Timothy, was stationed in Ephesus. And as Timothy had been stationed there with a charge to preach the gospel and to set in order the things that are wanting, he had, of course, a great responsibility ahead of him. No doubt Paul often thought about the work that lay ahead of Timothy, the difficulties that he would encounter in Ephesus, the powerful means by which he would be a witness and a servant for the cause of Jesus Christ. However, as he wrote this book, in the midst of it here near the end of chapter number 1, he makes note, perhaps you and I would consider it a passing note, but it's more than that. It's an inspired note. Notice again, this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Onesiphorus was recorded. You and I can read this and see within it the powerful friendship that these two enjoyed. Let's notice four remarks, four lessons that you and I might learn that we can benefit from day by day as we strive to be a good friend to somebody else. The first point I would ask you to note with me comes from verse 16. That first point is simply this, that Onesiphorus often refreshed Paul. Onesiphorus often refreshed Paul. Those are the very words that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, utilized. Isn't it an amazing and a truly fascinating thing? Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment. Put yourself for just a moment in the position of Onesiphorus. The Roman Empire was a rather stern empire. They were peace-loving people, but for those who were in prison, it was certainly the case that Onesiphorus, to a certain extent, risked his own life by coming and supporting and showing aid and comfort to this man named Paul. After all, Paul had appeared before many of the Roman rulers, such as Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and even at one point the Caesar himself. If he was perceived then as one who was defiant to the empire, one who was in any sense a troublemaker, then for Onesiphorus to openly and publicly support and encourage him, maybe he would be locked up too. It may well be Onesiphorus could have found himself in the very same position Paul was in. But let it be resoundingly noted that did not stop Onesiphorus. He was not ashamed of my chain, Paul said. Notice the impressiveness then of that aspect of his friendship not being ashamed of Paul's chain. And note the word often. Paul used the word often in verse 16. It's not that Onesiphorus refreshed me once. He often refreshed me. 
And that word often means repeatedly or frequently. And that word refresh means to cheer up or to revive. Do we not perhaps get this sense that Paul found himself somewhat discouraged maybe on a time or two? Maybe he was a bit disillusioned, perhaps a bit on the side of distressment. He knew after all that death almost certainly was shortly in his future. And yet Onesiphorus came and cheered him up. Doesn't a good friend do that? What about you and me? As we are friends to somebody else, can it be said that you and I are refreshment to them? Do we often refresh them? If we're a good friend, at least every now and then, that could be said of us, couldn't it? You and I often refresh those who are our good friends, those who are our true friends. We can see that Onesiphorus did that to Paul, and oh, what a great thing it was for him. The brightness with which he described Onesiphorus is truly a bright rainbow on the treasure we observe here. But that isn't the only lesson. Consider yet another one. This one taken from verse 17. Verse 17, but when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently. We immediately see that the friendship that Onesiphorus had with Paul was not a mere fair-weather friendship. Earlier in the lesson tonight, we noted that there are some who are friends so long as they can be advantaged or gained. That certainly wasn't true of Onesiphorus. Notice, while in prison, what did Paul have to offer him? It certainly wasn't money. It certainly wasn't anything by way of prestige or pomp or circumstance or power. Paul was again in prison. But yet Onesiphorus, Paul said, he sought me out diligently. And note that word diligently. It means with haste. In other words, there was no delay here. It means with haste or with great diligence or with great effort. In fact, if we ponder just a moment, I believe we'll gain a new impression of that word. You and I are accustomed to living in a day where finding directions and locating a given place is reasonably easy. We can purchase a map or we can pull up an internet site and print out a map to some place we'd like to go. Onesiphorus didn't have that option. Here was Paul in prison somewhere in the imperial city of Rome. Who knows where he might have been. The Roman emperor, those in control, may have had Paul imprisoned anywhere in the dungeon or the basement of any old building, almost certainly it would not have been trivially easy to find Paul. And yet Onesiphorus sought me out diligently, the text says. Day after day he may have looked, inquiring, asking questions, longingly waiting to find his dear friend Paul who was imprisoned. Oh, indeed, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Paul's chain, not ashamed of his imprisonment, but yet expended himself to search and find where his friend was. And when he found him, to cheer him up, to encourage him, to revive him, to in fact share with him words of edification and support. We gain a clear impression of the genuine and true friendship that Onesiphorus knew and that which he enjoyed as well. Notice as well that not only was his friendship related to Rome, verse 18 makes another rather interesting observation. Not only did Onesiphorus come and support Paul while he was in Rome, verse 18 says he did the same thing when Paul was in Ephesus. You see, the friendship that Onesiphorus knew was not limited to just a place. It wasn't limited to only a restricted time. 
He was a friend through thick and through thin. He was a friend in all occasions, whether they be good or whether they be not so good. It does put us in mind of the careful way in which that friendship was to the great benefit of both Onesiphorus and Paul. But what about a third lesson? In addition to those two, consider also that as Onesiphorus ministered to Paul in these many places, that gives us an impression of the persistence that was in the heart and mind of Onesiphorus. And that obviously asks and demands the same question of you and me. Are you and I persistent friends? Or do we give up on a friend when it looks like the slightest thing has gone amiss? Or is that friendship precious enough to salvage? Is it important enough to work things out? You see, persistence is a part then of that text we noted earlier where a friend loveth at all times. It may be true that a friend might do something so hurtful that it's difficult to overcome. But if there's any chance to salvage, any possibility of restructuring that friendship and extending it, it would seem that Onesiphorus would have done it. And the same would Paul have. The beauty of that friendship, perhaps ask another question. It would seem that those two didn't keep score. Again, how often had Paul had to find Onesiphorus? There's no record in the scriptures he ever had. But how often had Onesiphorus found him? True friends don't keep score, do they? They don't chalk things up and hold grudges and keep things against one another. They understand that love overcomes that. And they understand that there is that friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But doesn't all of this hasten us to the final point? What was it that forged that bond between Paul and Onesiphorus? What was it that made it so strong? In fact, it has been embedded so beautifully in the text of verses 16 to 18. As we look back at them, it leads us to this final and fourth point. That which forged this friendship and this bond was none other than the greatness of the cherishment based on the bond of Christianity. You see, what it was that forged that bond and what it was that made it so strong was the fact that they had eternity in common. You see, when friends share something that's that lengthy and that substantial, it is based upon something so marvelous and so grand and so lasting. And that's what made this friendship so wonderful. Notice the wording again. Isn't it easy to see how highly Paul thought of Onesiphorus? He often refreshed me. He sought me out diligently. May the Lord grant him mercy in the day of judgment. What three grander statements could have been said? Here was Paul, mindful of the fact that on that great and noble day of judgment, he longed and desired that God would extend mercy to this faithful friend of his and that he would in fact find an eternity of riches waiting for him. We, of course, could well appreciate that Onesiphorus must have felt the same. For he sought Paul out on these many occasions. He longed to find him in both Rome and in Ephesus. And isn't it interesting, those three little words nestle near the end of verse 18. In how many things? Paul doesn't go into length here to tell us what else did Onesiphorus do for him. In what other ways had Onesiphorus ministered to Paul? We don't know. He just uses this plural word, many things. 
We don't know what all Onesiphorus may have done. He may have been a tremendous agent supporting Paul monetarily. He could have been a powerful force of kindness and solace when things got so bad. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28, Paul gave an inspired listing of many things that he endured, shipwrecks and beatings and other anxieties and tumults within and without, perils in almost all circumstances. Who knows but what Onesiphorus may have been there with a kind letter, a powerful visit, an idea of support that aided Paul in going onward in the fight for truth. We each need that kind word every now and then. We need a kind word of encouragement. And isn't it still true that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver? Proverbs 25, 11. When a friend does speak that kind word, when we're down, that may be the very idea needed to trudge us onward and lead to the grand goal ahead. When things look bleak and dark, when the horizon looks cloudy and dim, that kind word of a friend may be the very thing needed to help us see the brightness that's beyond the horizon, the kindness and the golden horizon that does lay beyond. To say all that is then to say that this friendship that Paul and Onesiphorus enjoyed was a bond of the blood of Jesus Christ. They knew that by supporting one another they could help each other reach the golden strand of glory in heaven. Today, you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ ought to have a treasure and an idea of that same level of friendship. Indeed, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Proverbs 18, 24. Jesus is, of course, our greatest friend, for he directly promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. And did he not promise to the apostles, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world? Matthew 28, verse 20. Those are just a sampling of the texts that tell us that when you and I tie on to Christ and we submissively obey Him, we have a friend that will never depart. But also when we make physical friends of those who feel the same, who also love the Lord and strive to do His bidding, that person, because of his or her devotion to this book, will also be a good friend. That will be a person who will rejoice when you need to rejoice and weep with you when you need to weep. Romans 12, 15. That will be a person to share with in times of difficulty, but who will also be there to celebrate in times of joy. The triumphant character of a friend, as it's addressed in the Bible, is such a grand theme, isn't it? And may we be richly improved as we also ponder the character of that friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Might we conclude or summarize some of our thoughts that we've learned this evening? The idea of friendship is such a buoyant one. It's one of the grand blessings that God has allowed us to appreciate in this old physical world. But as we ponder a true friend, we notice that that true friend is not one that is just in good times only. But it's one who, like Onesiphorus, is not ashamed of our chains. Furthermore, that good friend is one who appreciates that there's persistence needed to diligently seek out like Onesiphorus did Paul. And isn't it also true that good friend will be one who appreciates the ultimate nature of what lies beyond by virtue of the blood of Christ and His sacrifice for us? What a lovely thought is a good friend. Are you a good friend to your spouse, to your children, to those who are about you? We each need to strive to be a good friend who loves at all times, one who is steadfast and firm on the word of the truth, 
and who is not willing ever to compromise that. But inasmuch as that good friend may see one in difficulty, like a brother or sister, who in James 5, verses 19 and 20, will strive to bring that one back to the truth of the gospel. This very evening, are you a Christian? Have you had your sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb? Realize that Jesus gave his life for you. It is such that he demands that you believe upon him. Except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins, the Lord said in John 8, 24. He also affirmed that, Peter did on the day of Pentecost, that repentance is necessary. To repent of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. Also, you need to confess him as a son of God, and then be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could aid you in doing that this evening, it would be, of course, a grand day for you indeed. But if you have been a member of the Lord's body, but you haven't been true to that calling, you have forsaken your friendship with Jesus. He is still where he always was, but you've walked away from him. As a friend that hasn't been good, you've ignored him, you've neglected him, you've turned your back upon him. Understand, you need to come back to that first love. He's still waiting with open arms to receive you back home. If we could help you to do that by way of prayer tonight, we'd be happy and honored to do it. If any of these is a need of your life, will you not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?